I'm so glad to be here today. And, um, you know, as we celebrate Ash Wednesday, we remember that God created us from dust by his own breath. And all of you know, Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of Lent, where we honor the 40-day period of fasting and preparation that Jesus underwent in the wilderness before he started his public ministry. And it's a time when we prepare our hearts for Passion Week, when Jesus was crucified, and then Easter morning when he was raised to life again. So as I was pondering this devotional and reading uh, my uh, morning devotions, I decided to start in a logical place, Moses. <laughs> For me, I'm not sure that's a direct connect, but kind of. So, you know, you all know the story of Moses. It's an incredible story, one that you could recite from memory with a Bible nowhere in sight. You've heard countless sermons on Moses. You've delivered devotions yourself, strong and mighty Moses. But just recently, even as I said in the last week or so, as I was reading the story again, I was tempted to skim it because I know it so well, but God slowed me down and he showed me some things I hadn't noticed before. And that's what I love the most about scripture is that we could read it for eternity and we can never quite capture all the nuances of God's grand covenant story, his love and his Hesed mercy. Um, we're going to just hopscotch through the story of Moses this morning. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to start right at the beginning in Exodus 1. And verse 1 says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went up to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph, who you will recall was already in Egypt administering for the Pharaoh. And, you know, starting Exodus 1 out like this, this simple verse just tells me, along with any a lot of other verses in scripture, that God loves to name us. And we see it so frequently in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 33, it says, this is the journey of the Israelites. This is their journey by stages. And then scripture goes on to rehearse God's children's travels, where they camped, how long they stayed, what happened there. Over and over again, he does that. He names us. He sees us. He, he, he keeps a record of everything that happens. So as we jump down a little farther in the story in Exodus, you know Joseph, Joseph and his brothers all die. And soon after Joseph's death, the favor that the Israelites have enjoyed under him ends because a new king came, a new Pharaoh. Joseph means nothing to him. And this king fears losing control over this vast population of Hebrews. He views them as a threat. So he thinks there may be an uprising. So he enslaves them and he works them ruthlessly. And as we think about Moses' story and his interactions with Pharaoh, especially at the beginning, you see three motivators coming up over and over again fear, power, control. And, you know, these aren't just words in the big bad Pharaoh story. They're enemies that we all encounter every day. We fight them in ourselves sometimes. We see them in others. And they can derail God's kingdom work in, in us and in the people around us and in, in systems and institutions and places where we find ourselves working. So as we 
think of those words, they're kind of the backdrop of everything that unfolds uh, after that fear, power, and control, those big enemies. And so the oppressed Hebrew population continues to multiply in the midst of this oppression and slavery. God sees them and he offers them this protection of sorts because he multiplies them and their numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger. But there's no outright rescue. They're still in slavery. They stay there a really long time. And Moses is born and, you know, He's hidden in a papyrus basket because they're going to kill all the babies. And he's floated down the Nile River and he's claimed and raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. And I, I've often wondered about Moses and being raised in the palace. And was it kind of a Cinderella situation? You know, she brings him in the palace and he is. He's hidden from Pharaoh because Pharaoh would be super mad if he knows his daughter brings this little Hebrew boy in. And so she hides him for a while and eventually Pharaoh finds out he's there. And is he raised in privilege? And is he accepted or is he kind of set aside and we're going to permit you to be here but like cinderella you're kind of the floor scrubber person you're under the second rung and you don't sit at the main table and you're off over here on the side and it's interesting to imagine what moses life must have been like being raised in the palace and how well received or not he was and so as Moses is a young man at some point, we don't know exactly when, but he reclaims his Hebrew heritage. He knows who he is. And so he kills an Egyptian out of anger when he sees an abuse happening. He's found out and Pharaoh determines to kill Moses. So Moses runs away. He goes to Midian. He marries a non-Hebrew woman. He has a son and he stays there 40 years and the king dies while he's there. So skipping ahead to the end of chapter two, Moses is over here in Midian. The scripture jumps back to the Israelites and says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they're crying out to God all these many years. And their cry goes up to God and he hears their groaning and he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the scripture says, so God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. And these scriptures remind me that though God may be silent for yea this many years, he doesn't miss a thing. He is the God who names us and he is also the God who sees. Nothing is hidden from him, scripture reminds us. And so many times in my own life, I have claimed that thought and said, here is my hope. That though we're fighting forces that seem too big for us, within us or around us or out of our control, forces that can oppress or enslave or hinder the work of God in our lives and institutions, he remains Al Roy, the God who sees. So here's where the story starts to get kind of juicy. And here's where the Holy Spirit showed me some new things. God finds Moses in chapter three. So Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law. He leads them to the rear side of the wilderness to Horeb, the mountain of God. And, you know, Horeb means dryness, drought, wasteland, desolation, barrenness. And I think we might safely say that after 40 years of self-imposed exile, Moses kind of did this to himself. 
he was in his own personal wilderness out there. And we've likely all been there. Moses has been in his wilderness herding sheep day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year. And this exile had likely become comfortable for him. It was a place of hiding, a life of hiding, a place of safety for him. But in his hiding and in his comfort and in his safety, Elroy, the God who sees, pursues Moses and he calls him by name. Moses, Moses, Bonnie, Bonnie, Michelle, Michelle, Tom, Tom. He calls him by name. Moses, I call you by name. I see it all. I haven't missed a thing this last 40 years on your journey. And we've got some business to take care of you and I. And the business in Moses' case, of course, was setting people free. And although that would have been a cause that was very close to Moses' heart, I would think, and it would intersect with his passion for the Hebrews, don't forget Moses wasn't a young man anymore. As we've said, he's been in hiding 40 years and who knows how old he was when he killed the Egyptian, but probably a young man, maybe in his 20s. So God commissions Moses in those beautiful passages in verse seven and eight, where he declares, I'm, I've seen your suffering. I've heard your outcry. I'm going to end your suffering and I'm going to bring you into a good and spacious land, a land that I have promised your forefathers to give you an incredible promise. But Moses, and this is what really struck me as I read this time through, Moses absolutely 100% is not having it. In verse 11, he says really boldly to God the first time God calls him, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And we don't know his exact tone of voice, but here's a man who's been in hiding. Here's a man who might have a little bit of a temper. And I think we see that played out as Moses strikes the rock, as Moses breaks the Ten Commandments, he killed the Egyptian. We don't understand his tone, but we know this is probably born out of insecurity and surprise and fear. And we don't know, maybe a little defensiveness. We don't know his tone here, but he says to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God tells Moses, he promises him right off the bat, I will be with you. But Moses says to God again, why should they believe me? And who should I tell them sent me? And basically Moses is saying to God, who are you really? Who should I tell them that sent me? Who are you really? And it's a fundamental question, I think, that we all ask of God sometime or another in our journeys. Who are you in the midst of all that's going on here? Who are you really in this? God makes what is the defining declaration of all of scripture. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And then he lays out Moses' calling in greater detail. But Moses, for the third time, continues to strive with God. And I think as I have read this story in the past, I have been pretty dismissive about the level of struggle 
that Moses had to accept God's assignment and continue in it. Moses did not want to do what God was asking him to do. So for a third time, he protests. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to what I say? Can you hear his insecurity here, his fear? And as he talks, you can just kind of feel this building, this kind of loathing of the whole idea. It's very off-putting to him. And so in response to the third protest, God gives him a weapon. Besides his verbal assurances, he actually hands him a weapon that will guide his warfare, the staff that is alive with the power of God. He throws it down. It becomes a snake. It's alive with God's power. And in response, you'll probably remember what Moses does. He runs away. His fourth response to God is physically to run away. So God continues to demonstrate his power. Moses does not waver in his response. The fifth time he talks to God about this, he says, I'm not eloquent, Lord. This assignment isn't for me. You've got the wrong person. I'm not eloquent. For the fifth time, God reassures Moses of his help. And in verse 13, once again, and I'm quoting scripture here, Moses says, no, he looks at God and says, please send someone else. Six times Moses looks at God and says, not me, not again. My grandson says, not going to do it, Nana. Six times, not going to do it, God. So I guess as I read this, I just started thinking, can you now, can I now, have we ever been able to resonate with Moses in his response? A complete total down in his gut to the very fiber of my being reticence to do something that God is asking me to do in my life or ministry. And, you know, I freely confess I've had more than one occasion to resonate with this Moses, even one that God who names me, he sees me, he pursues me, he calls my name, he declares he's going to go before me and deliver me from bondage, personal or systemic, when he's calling. Sometimes I just want to say, no, thank you for thinking of me, but no. The scenarios are endless. The risks may be too high. Bonnie, ask this person to forgive you. Take this job. Humble yourself here. Move to this city. Quit smoking. That wasn't me, but I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> Quit smoking. Whatever it is. But after Moses 6, kindly decline. Scripture tells us in verse 14, the Lord's anger burns against Moses. So he zaps Moses with a lightning bolt and the story's over. No, God still doesn't give up on Moses and he doesn't give up on us. And we can almost see God rolling his eyes and heaving a big sigh and saying, really, Moses? But God's mercies are never ending. So he says, instead, what about your brother, Aaron? I will give you a companion on this journey. And he can do your speaking for you. 
And we all need companions on our journey, don't we? I still think Moses relents after God says, I'll give you Aaron. I still think Moses must have been a grudging partner. And you, you theologians can help me understand the full significance for this. But on the way back to Egypt, the Lord meets Moses and scripture says he's going to kill him. The Lord is going to kill Moses. But Exodus 4.13 tells us his wife saves him by an act of circumcision, his sons, which we know signifies a cutting away of the flesh in our life. So somewhere in that journey back, I think there was maybe a Jacob kind of confrontation, Jacob and the angel confrontation, again, between God and Moses. Maybe we'll never know this side of heaven. But soon Moses and Aaron go back. They bring the impending deliverance, the good news of deliverance to the Israelites. But Aaron actually does the talking on Moses' behalf. And the people rejoice. They celebrate, but not for long. Because when the two men appear before, before Pharaoh, he is more enraged than ever, and he exacts revenge on the whole Hebrew nation. The Hebrews' lives are harder than ever before. The Pharaoh's punishment is worse. The Israelite leaders reconvene with Moses and Aaron. They ask God to kill Moses and Aaron and punish them because you've only made our lives harder. You've promised us deliverance and things are only worse. So Moses returns to the Lord in this journey of his. And he complains again. Why have you brought trouble on these people? Scripture says, you have not rescued them at all, Lord. He's very bold in his conversations with God. And in response, God promises deliverance again. Moses reports it to the Israelites. They don't believe him. Don't you imagine that this is an absolutely excruciating journey for Moses, who really wanted nothing to do with it in the first place. Now he's back. He's declaring deliverance. Aaron has to talk for him. It's not happening. So God keeps instructing him, go back to the Pharaoh again. And Moses again comes against God in verse 12 and says, if my own people won't listen to me, why would he? So interestingly, in the very middle of this super painful story, we see a break in chapter six. Seemingly out of nowhere, God comes in to this scripture in the middle of this whole narrative, and he reiterates the family record of Moses and Aaron in great detail. He names them. In the middle of the story, he takes a total break in what he's talking about, the writer, and he names them. These are the sons of Moses and Aaron. These are the heads of their household. And he reminds us again, he names us. He sees us. Crazy. Crazy to think about that interlude in this story where God stops and says, don't forget. I name you. So Moses back in verse 30 for another time yet goes to God and says, why would Pharaoh listen to me? They go back. Scripture says Moses is 80 and Aaron is 83. And the series of the plagues begin in earnest. They appear before Pharaoh together multiple times. You know the story. Sometimes Aaron talks, sometimes Aaron acts, sometimes Moses talks, but as we see him going through this encounter 
over and over, crisis after crisis, you could almost feel his courage to lead building. And scripture says that as he pronounced the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons, he was hot with anger. And the rest of the story is history. And we know that Moses becomes this Moses right here. The mighty Moses, the Charlton Heston Moses that leads the people across the Red Sea. Look at him. Woo! That's the Moses I know. But first, he was a frail Moses. The Moses who implored God to choose someone else, who tried so hard to give up on his calling before it even started. The Moses who understood very well that he was made from dust. And you know, before Moses and Aaron warned Pharaoh at the final plague, he told the Hebrew people to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, to take the blood, to put it over the doorpost of their house and their lives. So when the angel of God came to execute judgment and the penalty for death and sin, they would be passed over. Nearly 1,500 years later, the perfect lamb of God would ride a donkey foal into Jerusalem. And as he entered the city, on what we call the triumphal entry, he would have been surrounded by thousands and thousands of bleeding lambs coming in that sheep gate with him, destined for sacrifice. Can you see it? The suffering servant was also the Messianic king. And just as God parted the waters of the sea for the faltering Moses, he opened a way for us tearing the curtain when that lamb was slain. So though on this Ash Wednesday, we remember that we are made from dust, we also know that therein is our hope. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Thanks for letting me be here with you today.